0: Well, please take God's Word and turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1. James, chapter 1. Uh, today we're going to look at verses 26 and 27. But before we do, I, I want to make a couple, of, a couple of comments, a couple of remarks. Uh, firstly... Uh, we recently completed a a foundations class here at Grace Community Church. And so we are thrilled today to receive new members, to announce new members. It falls on me. It's my privilege to introduce you to them. And so I'm going to read off a few names and just ask them to stand where they are. And if uh, any of these faces are unfamiliar to you, any of these names unknown to you, that is to the members of GCC then please introduce yourselves to these ones later this morning. And so we have Scott and Lisa Beatty, and daughter Abigail and son Asher, way there in the back. Welcome, folks. Also, Mike and Jean Perry, sitting closer to the front. There we are. Everyone can see Mike and Jean. Roger and Sarah Monkus, also near the front, over to my right, your left. Wonderful, thanks, folks. Uh, some who we've seen around here for some time, some of our young people. And it's wonderful to see them assume this responsibility and seek membership here at Grace Community Church. And so we have Emma Velaster. Is Emma here way in the back. There's Emma. Jeremiah Gumpert. His sister Alicia Gumpert. Not sitting together, that's okay. (laughs) And Abby Baldwin, who I think is toward the back as well. All right, thanks, Abby. Thanks to everyone. And again, my great pleasure, my great privilege to receive these ones into fellowship, into membership here at Grace Community Church. And we look forward in the days, weeks, months, years ahead to how the Lord will use you in our lives and how the Lord will use us in, in your lives. A uh, second, second comment I, I want to make, and, and we, we will find our way to James one 26-26. 27 eventually is, I do, I do want to say something of, of what transpired Friday night with Lanny Thacker uh, passing into the presence of the Lord. And I don't mean to put the Thackers on the spot or make them feel uncomfortable, but I, but I do think it, it bears some remarks, some comments. And, and there are a couple of things I, I, I pray, I have been praying that we are, we are clear on at Grace Community Church, especially as we've touched on them already in the book of James. And the first thing I pray we're clear on is, is who God is. I trust we're clear on that. And you think, you think of a few passing statements that, that James makes. He, he, he is a theologian by right. And he gives us some wonderful pictures, snapshots of our God And I'm thinking of the one he gives us in James 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Our God is exceedingly generous. Exceedingly generous. I want you to notice that verse that I've been belaboring it of late, and I think rightly so. Still in chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so not only is our God exceedingly generous, uh, He is exceedingly good. He is good. And He does good because He is essentially good. The third phrase, we're not there yet, but it's way over in chapter 5. The third picture, verse 11, where James says the following, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I pray we are clear as to who our God is. He is exceedingly generous, he is exceedingly good, and he is exceedingly gracious. That is our God. Many of us struggle uh, with affliction, trials, and its accompanying sorrow. We feel like the mythological figure Atlas with the weight of the world upon our shoulders. Oftentimes, these afflictions, these trials are well beyond our control. We're powerless to do anything about them. And our sense of helplessness is increased by our limited view, very limited view, of what God is doing. We really don't know at times what God is doing. At times like these, we want answers to the question why. Yet we must hold to what we know. And so hear this, what we know. We know this exceedingly generous, exceedingly good, exceedingly gracious God governs all things according to the pleasure of His will. We know that. We know that this exceedingly generous, exceedingly good, exceedingly gracious God, that it is His goodness that dictates His providence meaning He has designed all things ultimately for our good. We know that this God, His wisdom, governs His providence, meaning He knows what is best for us. And we know that this God's power accomplishes His providence, meaning He is in ultimate control. And lastly, we know that we can take refuge in the shadow of His wings, where we find a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I pray we're clear on that. Our God, who he is, exceedingly generous, exceedingly good, and exceedingly gracious. That's for everyone. I want to make another comment. And, um, you know... Jesse catches my eye. I know the plainer girls are out there, the Bernardi kids, I know Carter's out there and a number of other who fall into that age bracket. And this is really this is really, I suppose, directed at you. And it comes out of what um, James has said earlier in this chapter concerning the brevity and the uncertainty of life. And I pray you, young people, learn it. And you learn it now, today. The brevity and the uncertainty of life. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the eternity of life in Christ. The brevity and the uncertainty of this temporal life versus the eternality of life in Christ. I pray you young ones get that. I pray, firstly, you get it for the salvation of your souls. Maybe some of our older ones, I don't know, need to hear this as well. Thomas Hobbes, a skeptic when it came to the Christian faith, critic of the Christian faith as he was lying on his deathbed, uttered these words. These were his last words uh, to his doctor. I will give you everything I have if you give me just one more day of life. Too late. I will give you everything I have if you would just give me one more day of life. The brevity and the uncertainty of life. And so you young people and all of us, may, may we learn this lesson. And um, and may we take it to heart. May this be our prayer in the words of the psalmist. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we, on that day yet coming, may present to you a heart of wisdom. To be wise is to be convinced of the uncertainty of our abode in this world. And it is to live accordingly. It is to live accordingly. So, You young ones, please learn that. And learn the marked difference, again, between the brevity and uncertainty of this life versus life forevermore in the presence of him at whose right hand are infinite, unsearchable, unfathomable pleasures. I pray we're clear on those things. I pray we are crystal clear on those truths and on those realities. What James gives us in verses 26 and 27 is a life worth living. What he really gives us, he puts on display a heart of wisdom. Uh, He shows us what it is to live life uh, in the light of eternity. And that's what I want to bring us from God's Word this morning. I pray that God's Spirit will take it and impress it upon each one. Hear what the Word of the Lord speaks to us from James 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure. And undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I put it to you. I submit it to you. Here is a life worth living. These are not things we might normally think of, but these are things that are uppermost in James' mind. And I suggest, therefore, that these are things that are uppermost in the mind of God. Here they are. Let me rhyme them off for you. Three things. First of all, a bridal tongue, verse 26. Second of all, a compassionate heart, verse 27. And thirdly, an unstained life, right at the end of verse 27. There's wisdom. There's a life worth living. there is what it means to practice our religion before God. We can look at these three, three things. We can actually come at them in the context of James 1 and into James 2. We can actually come at them from three distinct angles. They are distinct angles, but they are actually closely related. And let me try to unpack these three for you. First of all, we can come at these verses, and in them we see three signs of spiritual life, three signs of spiritual life. And so Ricky's going to bring up a slide behind me, and there it is. This spiritual life is in view right from verse 17 through to the end of the chapter. And so in these verses in James 1, you know, we can't take them in isolation. We can't break them up and study them as unrelated because in actual fact, they are interconnected and they build on one another. Uh, James is painting with a very broad paintbrush, broad strokes, this picture of the Christian life. And he begins a verse I already alluded to, verse 17, with, What I think is the greatest statement in the entire book, James 1.17, that every good gift and every perfect gift descends from above, from God. Who is this God? He is the Father of lights. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And so there we have a celebration of God's unchangeable goodness. He is good. As the psalmist declares in Psalm 119, you are good. It's just who he is. You are good and you do good. Well, what good has he done? Has he performed in our lives? We have it in verse 18. He birthed us by his own will, of his own will. He brought us forth By the word of truth that we might be the first fruits of a new creation. And so this good God created all things. That's the old creation. Everything we see, us included. But we know there's a new creation. There's a new creation in Christ Jesus. And God has brought us into this creation. He has caused us to be born again. He has birthed us as a manifestation of His goodness. And He has done that through that book that is sitting there in your laps. The word of truth, he has made it alive to us. And then having birthed us, verses 19 through 25, he now grows us. He causes us to be born again by the word of truth that he might cause us to grow by the word of truth that we might be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when we come to verses 26 and 27, he gives us these three signs that we're alive, these three evidences that we have indeed been born again, that he has made us one with Christ, that he has brought us into this new creation. They are, again, a bridal tongue, a compassionate heart, and an unstained life. That's one angle from which we can approach these verses second angle from which we can approach these verses is as follows. Here we see three marks of pure religion. In verse 26, he speaks of worthless religion. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. It is unacceptable in God's sight. Now, wait for it. Sharp contrast, verse 27, religion that is pure, that is sincere, undefiled, before God the Father. And so religion that is acceptable to God is what? In contrast to that worthless religion, here it is. It is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so worthless religion over here. Pure and undefiled religion over here. What does he mean by religion? We can take a peek into the second chapter, the very first verse, and there we have the answer. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so there's the gospel. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We believe who the Lord Jesus Christ is, the Son of God. We believe in the incarnation of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the man. We believe in his perfect life. We believe in his substitutionary death. We believe that he has made atonement for our sins. We believe that at Calvary's cross, God displayed him publicly to make atonement for our sin. We believe that three days, three nights later, he rose from the dead. We believe he is seated at glory in glory at the right hand of the Father. This is what we believe. But what does James say there in chapter 2, verse 1? That we hold. What does it mean to hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? Well, there, what he has in view is what we do with our faith in Christ. Or rather, how our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, shows itself in our lives. For James, going back to verses 26 and 27, that's religion. Religion is holding our faith, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so religion, pure and undefiled religion, is what we do, having believed in the Lord Jesus, is what we do with what we say we believe. This faith in Christ, I'm going to bring up a hymn, an old hymn on the... the, on the screen behind me in just a moment. Uh, this past couple of weeks, I've been um, researching an old, uh, one of the oldies, an oldie but a goodie, Horatius Bonner. What a name, Horatius Bonner. And he was a pastor, I can't remember the town, but in the, the Scottish borders, so the lowlands of Scotland, 1808 to 1888, something like this. And Horatius Bonner a penned, I think, some of the most wonderful hymns uh, that the church possesses. And I'm going to bring up some of the stanzas from one of his hymns uh, behind me here so that we're clear uh, on what we mean when we speak of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Lord of glory. I want you to notice these first two stanzas. And, uh, and I pray that there is clarity When it comes to what Horatius Bonner is saying here, and now what these hands have done, not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. There Bonar is acknowledging what? The plight of mankind. There he is acknowledging black and white our sinful predicament. There he is acknowledging that God is holy, we are not. God is good, we are not. God is righteous, we most certainly are not. There he is putting pen to paper and in such eloquent fashion... (coughs) expressing this realization of the soul that when it comes to our acceptance by God, we bring nothing and we contribute nothing. Now look at what he goes on to say. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. And so the contrast between what I am incapable of doing and what Christ is more than capable of doing, this contrast between my shortcoming, my sin, and Christ's victory, and Christ's righteousness. That this gap that stands, yes, infinite gap, immeasurable gap between me and a holy God. But this wonderful truth that a mediator has stood, has entered into the gap, and paid the penalty for my sin, bore that burden in my place, and has made peace with God through the blood of his cross. And now look at how he wraps it up. I bless all. The Christ of God. Here it is. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine. And with unfaltering lip and heart, I call this Savior mine. That's the gospel. That is the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory how we hold to that faith is our religion. And as far as James is concerned, pure and undefiled religion bears these three marks, a bridled tongue, a compassionate heart, and an unstained life. Now there's a third angle from which we can come at verses 26 and 27, and it's this. Not only do we see three signs of spiritual life, Not only do we see three marks of pure religion, but here we see three tests of effectual hearing. You look at what James says in the verses immediately preceding ours. Go all the way back to verse 22. There he commands us, be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, this is the word of God, the word of truth, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. There's a flow. He's, He's tying in what he says now in verses 26 and 27 to what he has just said in verses 22 through 25. If anyone thinks he is religious, And does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Deceives his heart. He's going back to the comment he made in verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. And so again, he has these two individuals in view. I don't know what's plaguing James. Something's irking him. I don't know what's going on. Please remember, this is one of the earliest epistles written in the New Testament. This is one of the first books written. We are way back in the early church, the dawning of the church. Something has happened. Something has likely happened in the city of Jerusalem that has irked James to such a degree that he feels compelled, motivated to write these words, acknowledging in the church at Jerusalem that there coexists these two individuals. There is on the one hand, this man, this woman, who knows the word of God and who looks intently at the word of God and sees exactly what he is. She knows exactly what she is. But as soon as he turns away, he's forgotten what he has seen. And this individual never acts On what he has seen. Therefore, this individual is simply a hearer of the word. And it is this individual, into verse 26, who thinks he's religious. He thinks he's holding to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But this man is incapable of bridling his tongue. He does not practice pure and undefiled religion. And therefore, in actual fact, this man, this woman is guilty of gross self-deception. But then there is the second individual. There he is. He looks into the word of truth. He comes face to face with his warts and all. He takes stock. He's brought under conviction by the Spirit of God. And not only does he shed tears over what he sees in the word of God, but as he goes away, what does he do? He acts upon it. He perseveres in it. He becomes an effectual doer. And what James now in verses 26 and 27 basically is doing is giving us these three tests of an effectual doer. Yes, there are three signs of spiritual life. Yes, they are three marks of pure religion, but they also serve as three tests of effectual hearing, a bridled tongue, a compassionate heart, and an unstained life. I know what you're thinking. Well, I'll assume you're thinking it because I think it when I read these verses. Whoopie doo. What's the big deal? a a, a bridal tongue, a compassionate heart, an unstained life. Surely, surely if he is about to talk about what it means to hold the faith, surely if he's about to describe pure and undefiled religion, he's going to put something exciting out there. He's going to talk about changing the world. He's going to talk about engaging the lost. He's going to talk about serving here, serving there, doing this, doing that. This is kind of boring. If that's my conclusion, we've completely missed it because if you look carefully, especially what James says in verse 27, do you know what he's describing? Do you know what he's saying? He's explaining what it means to be godlike. That's what he's doing. He is explaining what it means to be like God. The goodness of God and the holiness of God as exemplified in the life of the believer. A bridled tongue, verse 26. Why does he place so much emphasis on that? I think the Lord Jesus himself tells us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Oh, self-control. And what it means to be humbled at the foot of the cross. To see myself as I really am. And to have that shape me. And by the Spirit of God cultivate poverty of spirit in me. The first place it will be seen is in terms of what comes out of this mouth. And if this tongue is not bridled, then what does it indicate? As far as James is concerned, I'm not making this up, am I? As far as James is concerned, what's his point? I've never been there. I've never been born again. I, am, I think I'm religious. Uh, I look into the mirror. I know the word of truth. But in actual fact, I'm a forgetful hearer. I'm not an effectual doer. And I am deceiving myself. What's the second thing? A compassionate heart. Oh, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Notice a couple things. First, that verb, to visit. I don't know if it's intentional. I think it probably is intentional that James is thinking of an experience, an event in the Old Testament. He's going all the way back to Exodus 4, where we read the following, the Lord visited the children of Israel in Egypt. The Lord visited the children of Israel in Egypt. Meaning what? He showed up at their front door? No, meaning what? He remembered them. He was merciful toward them. He was compassionate toward them. And this is what James has uppermost in his mind here. A compassionate heart. Oh, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Is that an exhaustive list? It most certainly is not. If you think that's an exhaustive list, I think you're mistaken. It's an illustrative list. And the point is this, that we recognize those who are in need. And holy compassion of the heart takes over and kicks in. And we are moved to help others in their misery and extremity. Compassionate sees poverty and he wants to help. Not indifferent. Compassionate sees disease. And he wants to assist somehow. Compassionate sees famine and he wants to feed he sees crime and he wants to protect. He sees oppression, brokenness, despair. And he empathizes with his fellow man in his misery. And understands this predicament as arising from the fall. And he's compassionate because God is compassionate. And he's merciful because God is merciful. He takes compassion upon those in their spiritual extremity. He exhorts the wayward, strengthens the weak, rebukes the backslidden, he comforts the sorrowful, he supports the distressed, he instructs the confused, he wants to be like God, a compassionate God. Remember, an exceedingly generous God, an exceedingly good God. And exceedingly gracious, a God who abounds in compassion and mercy, having been brought forth by this good God, and having been made part of this God's family, having been birthed by the word of truth, and now growing in likeness and conformity to He who is the image of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, what is now front and center is the, in the mind is this desire to be like Him. And to show forth such compassion and to be compassionate as he is compassionate. And then the third is what? An unstained life. It is to keep oneself unstained from the world. Horatius Bonner. I told you I've been reading a lot of him of late. He penned the following. Associating too much and too intimately with the world we have in great measure become accustomed to its ways. Hence, our tastes have been vitiated. Our consciences have been blunted. Oh, that sensitive tenderness of feeling, which shrinks from the remotest contact with sin, has worn off and given place to a callousness of which we once in fresher days believed ourselves incapable, incapable. Oh, the prevalence of worldliness and being stained by the world within the church today, as far as James is concerned, no, 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 that it, it, it just is not, it just is not possible. It just does not work like that. Here are three signs of spiritual life. Here are three marks of pure religion. Here are three tests of effectual hearing. Yes, a bridal tongue, a compassionate heart, and an unstained life. I want you to notice one additional thing as we wrap it up in these verses. It's precious. It's great. It's right there in verse 27. If we weren't paying attention, we would almost miss it. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God The Father is this. It's not a throwaway phrase. He's not simply trying to reach his 500-word limit. He's not waxing eloquent. He is transmitting, transferring a glorious truth that is meant to grab and hold the attention of his readers, and it's meant to grab and hold our attention that God is our Father. It takes us all the way back where? In his mind. Verse 18, and the reality that of his own will, the will of this God who dwells in glory above, who no man has seen nor can see, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who dwells in unapproachable light, the one who is the Father of lights, exceedingly glorious, in absolute no need of you or me, of his own will, for his own pleasure. For the eternal manifestation and declaration of the glory of His grace and His exceeding generosity. He brought us forth by the word of truth. By bringing us forth, He made us part of His family. By becoming part of His family, He is now by definition what? Our Father. Like Father, like Son. That's James' point. Like father, like son. He's a chip off the old block. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That's his point. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Oh, remember, God is your father. He has birthed you. He is now growing you. You're supposed to be like him. Religion that is pure and undefiled before the God, the father, the one who birthed us. It is this. It is to have a compassionate heart, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And it is to maintain an unstained life, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let me take you back as we wrap up. I can't help myself. I hope you appreciate this hymn like I do. And this is exceptional. It really is. Put it in the context of what we've been considering of what we've been hearing and understand that this rests at the foundation. Yes, you've got these three signs of spiritual life. Yes, these three marks of pure religion. And yes, these three tests of effectual hearing. That's fine. Please understand though, we're dealing with the consequence of salvation. We're wrestling with the fruit of what it means to be converted. Here's what undergirds it all. Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make me spirit whole. Not in a million years, whatever I could do or think I could do. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. And now notice how he points us heavenward. Thy work alone, O Christ can ease this weight of sin thy blood alone o lamb of god can give me peace within thy grace alone o god to me can pardon speak thy power alone o son of god can this sore bondage bondage to sin this sore bondage break i bless i bless the christ of god i rest on love divine And with unfaltering lip and heart, I call this Savior mine. Do you call this Savior yours? Is the Lord Jesus Christ yours? And are you his? It is to acknowledge our utter spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God. He is not impressed with us in the least. As a matter of fact, we are children of wrath by nature. And it is to acknowledge His glorious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to rest in Him as our only hope. It is to cling to Him and receive Him and come into the presence of this great God, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, making one plea and one plea alone, By grace alone. Our Father, we pray that you might stir our hearts deeply by what we have pondered and considered in your presence this day. We pray that the individual who needs to be challenged would be challenged. That you would make the comfortable feel uncomfortable. And we pray for the weary, the uncomfortable, that in your word and in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Uh, they might find great comfort, great peace, great solace for the soul. We pray that Christ might be exalted and glorified in our minds and our hearts by all that has been proclaimed this day. And we seek it from you in his most worthy name. Amen.